he shows up absolutely shit-faced drunk, blacked out drunk, but I don't realize that he's blacked out. I, uh, and I got thrown to the ground and it snapped the top of my tibia off. Oh, Emily. You are listening to Badass, a podcast where we hold authentic conversations about the most difficult experiences life can hold for us. We explore the transformative power of these events and what they teach us about ourselves and the world. I am your host, Mirabai Rose. Welcome to Badass. Today on Badass, we're talking with Emily Reynolds. Emily is a woman with a rich life history, having begun her career working for multiple not-for-profit agencies and even running her own mortgage business for a few years. Emily is a Bloomington, Indiana local who currently runs the Anchored Homestead, selling fresh produce and offering educational opportunities on sustainable agriculture. Emily also juggles several part-time jobs, one as a preschool teacher, another as a landscaper, and waits tables to make ends meet. Just that qualifies her as a badass in my book. However, Emily is also a single mom to four kids ranging in age from 4 to 15 years old. Emily gained legal guardianship over her eldest after leaving an abusive marriage to her 15-year-old's father. Today, Emily shares with us her experience of being a survivor of domestic violence, or as she likes to call it, a victor. In March of this year, Emily's abuser was convicted of felony domestic battery. It is rare for a survivor of domestic violence to see this kind of justice. While domestic violence itself is all too prevalent, with one in four women experiencing intimate partner violence in their lifetime, the vast majority of domestic violence cases never make it into the criminal justice system. When they do, many abusers plead down to a misdemeanor charge. And of those that remain at the felony level, the conviction rate is just 50%. Today, Emily shows us the tenacity required on the part of the survivor to see a domestic violence case all the way through. She also illuminates the ways in which domestic violence can look very different than the Lifetime movies we grew up with. She also shows us just how easy it is for a woman to find herself in a violent relationship and how hard it can be to get out. Emily, welcome to Badass. We are so glad to have you here today. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start our conversation today at the very beginning of your relationship how you met, where you were in your own life at the time you met, and what those early days were like. I mean, to be honest, looking back at those times is a difficult thing to do because we love to see it with the rose-colored glasses in the moment, and we don't recognize it. So going back almost feels like, oh gosh, how dumb was I? How, how did I miss all of the signs? But there are so many times when we are wrapped up in the things that we want to have in our lives and we want for people to be that we just look straight, straight through mm-hmm. who someone is. And it began, we had originally met and dated 20 plus years ago. I was 18, fresh out of high school, 
we dated for a summer. It was fun. It was a good time. Um, and I moved away. And we did not keep in touch until the summer of 2017. It was the spring. I had just moved into my own little farmhouse out in Greene County. It was a beautiful space for myself and the kids. I was enjoying my time with, at that point in time, I had two children. And they. And how old were those kiddos at the time? Um, Phoenix was five. He was in kindergarten, I believe. He had just finished kindergarten. Tesla was three, four. She was four, four and six, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think. Oh, gosh. Um, and we just had our own little space. I had days off because their father would take them for a few days at a time. I would have days off. I would go and hang out with friends. We would have little get-togethers, little bonfires at my house. It was like just a free time where I was enjoying being myself. I was happy. And I got a random message from this man. And I was like, oh, wow. Where the hell did you come from? And so we started chatting online. And it was like, wow, I really want to see you again. I really want to meet you. So he came up to Indiana. He was living in Georgia. And he came up to Indiana and we spent several weeks together. It was this, you know, super new, fun thing to venture into with this man who just absolutely adored me, told me how beautiful I was and how amazing I was. He would clean my house for me while I was at work. And it got to the point traveling back and forth from Georgia where I was like, all right, I want you here mm-hmm. with me and bring your daughter. He knew I knew he had a daughter. She was 10 at the time. Um, bring your daughter. You know, here he had told me he was a stand-up father. He had his daughter on his own. Mm -hmm. Her mother wasn't in the picture. He had raised her. Um, I really didn't get the full picture until down the road after they had already moved in with me. Right. It sounds like he was working really hard to present himself as this caring, supportive. He was. He was just this amazing man that was going to answer all of my prayers in life, right? He said he would get a job doing X, Y, Z, whatever it was that came to his mind that day. And he would support our family and we would have a million kids and it would be just one big happy family on the farm. He wanted a farm. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. And I bought it hook, line, and sinker. I just said, okay, this is what I want in life. And... They moved from Georgia a few months later, and the nightmare started Mm. almost immediately. They were here. I was trapped. I felt trapped. Here Mm. I have, you know, this man and his daughter, and I felt awful for her because he just turned in. It was Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. He just turned into someone I didn't even recognize. It started coming out about how, you know... He had actually abandoned her, his daughter, for I think a total of four years Mm. where he just kind of went, moved 
states away for work, so he said. Although I find out he just kind of stayed there and played without having work half the time. Um, How did he end up with full custody of her? It went, you know, we talk about the cycle of abuse and mental health care is a huge deal. He had trauma from his upbringing. He was abused as a child. His parents were manipulative people who had basically deceived the courts in order to get full custody for him on his behalf. And they took his daughter and took care of his daughter. He moved away. Okay. Where was his daughter's mother? um, So she was, she had been in and out of rehab. And I do have somewhat of a relationship with her now. Not that my kiddo has anything to do with her, but I keep tabs on her. She was brought into all of the legal guardianship stuff by his parents. Um, the Yeah, so she had been in and out of rehab, from my understanding. She has admitted to me that she did leave her behind, but that she had basically been told, hey, we can provide a better life for your kid. Mm-hmm. What I believe, I, I'm not sure, but yeah. So it was a lot of, it just sounds like a lot of manipulation and deception on everybody's part mm-hmm. that was involved yeah. through that time. So you were thinking, you know, this is a really happy father-daughter pair with a yeah. good bond. And, yeah. and then they get here and there's actually this really difficult and, history. And you could see even in her posturing, she wasn't comfortable around him. Mm-hmm. She didn't want to be around him. It was almost like, well, you're the only thing I know. He was the only thing she knew in this new environment. But at the same time, it was almost like a shudder when he would come around her. Mm -hmm. And that was, for me, unnerving. And I started developing a better relationship with her. Um, She was actually one of my driving forces for fighting so hard to keep her safe because she did not want to be with him. And I knew that if she were with him, it would just be a sick relationship in the sense that there would be further trauma. There would be serious codependency issues. Mm -hmm. It just, that's, you know, I, I stayed too long to make sure that I could save her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go back a little bit further in time. So he moved from Georgia. And what were some of those early moments when you were like, oh, I, this guy is not who I thought he was? It's, it's fun when there are no children involved. You can have a couple drinks. You can hang out by the fire. There's no stress of children or things to be done. You're just enjoying your time together. And when you throw in the stress of reality, life, parenting, having to do all of these things, and you mix 
some serious drinking with it, it becomes a volatile situation where he would be drinking just as he had when we would hang out before, but more. Mm. And we're talking, you know, putting down bottles of liquor where he would... I couldn't tell that he was blackout drunk, but he was blacking out and would just... It was like a switch. Flip the switch. He would be loud, yelling, screaming, pushing me around. It was... Scary. And it was almost immediately after they moved in. It was just like nothing I could do was good enough. Mm. I didn't make enough money. I spoke to the children in a way he didn't want me to. I was too nurturing with them. I was too caring. They needed discipline. This is a man who came from a militant household. Mm -hmm. And that was how he wanted to rule our household which is not, you know, not my way of doing things. Yeah, yeah. And in those early days, as you're um, just realizing who he is, did you push back, you know, were there early moments of feeling like, you know, I, I need to push back against this? Or was it immediately like, oh, I need to just try to calm the situation? It was more of a calmness situation scenario. Here I had all of these children together. I found out I was pregnant with who my Raven, who is now four. And I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to have to keep the peace. I don't want to have to venture into birthing a child without the support of a partner. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, you know, hindsight, I could have done just fine. I would have been just fine. Um, But in that moment, with all of this chaos in life of starting this new family and thinking, well, maybe this is just an adjustment period. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is just us getting used to being together 24 hours a day. Maybe things will smooth out. Maybe we'll learn to get to work together better Mm -hmm. about things. I didn't push back. I was like, okay, trying to be understanding, trying to really see where is this person coming from? And as I mentioned before, he did have a lot of childhood trauma and that was starting to come out. He was abused. He was hit with coat hangers and belts and everything else. He had a time when his mother was apparently arrested for child abuse because she beat him. And his gym teacher, he was, I believe, 13 or 14 years old, and his gym teacher saw the marks all over his body. And that went from there. And she was arrested. They were taken by CPS. They were put in a different house. She was in jail for two weeks. There was a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Now, we can't find any actual recorded history of this. This was back in the late 80s, early 90s. So Mm -hmm. it's hard to find the records on things like that these days, especially when you're dealing with minors, closed case stuff. Um, But this trauma, I truly do believe, happened to him. And it's something that we all need to be talking about more 
even if it's not that you um, are currently in an abusive or violent situation, that your trauma you may have been through as a child even is something that mental health-wise we really need to start talking about and getting help for and making sure that we are getting the, you know, the care that we need to not continue that cycle. Yes. And that was, it was really difficult to watch him unravel because of what he had not tended to in his own personal childhood trauma. Yes. Yes. And it's, it's so interesting for, you know, the, the partner of somebody who, is unraveling in that way um, because you really do have compassion, right? Like, you know, yes. and, and compassion generally in relationships is a really good thing. Yeah. It's usually a great thing. It is. Um, but it's really tricky in these circumstances because I do think that so often our own compassion, you know, for that person begins to be much greater than our compassion for ourselves. And it, it can be a slippery slope between that line you're walking between being a compassionate human being and having healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm. There has to be a line there where we get stuck in this, oh, well, maybe if I'm just kind enough, if I just keep repeating like, hey, if you need help, get help. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, if people are going to change, they're going to change. And if they're not, they're not. And you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Yeah. Right? You can't uh, You can't force someone to go get help for the issues that they've got from childhood trauma or whatever they've been through in life. Like when you're up against someone who is violent and abusive because of their upbringing their past traumas only they can fix themselves and change themselves and I think there was a point um this is not my first rodeo with a domestic violence relationship and in my first one there was a moment of clarity for me when I finally recognized what it meant to be codependent Mm that I had been in this relationship thinking I could fix this person. Mm-hmm. I'm a fixer. I'm a fixer. Yeah. That was it. And I sat down. I remember I was sitting down on my friend's back porch, and it was just like this aha moment. Like, I have to stop doing this. I, I can I could talk and try till I'm blue in the face, but I can't fix someone else. Yeah, that's their life. That's their responsibility. And so in this more recent marriage, I was able to hold that on my own and know that and recognize that about myself and say, you know what? I can sit here and say, hey, get help. If you need help, get help. I think, you know, dealing with some of your trauma would be great for you to work through some of this stuff would take the edge off. You wouldn't have this weighing on your mind. You'd be able to hash that out and understand what had happened to you was not your fault. Mm-hmm. But I was never sitting there going, I will fix you. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, in the times early on when you were thinking, if I'm just more kind, if I can just tweak my behavior, that really speaks to something that happens for those of us in these violent relationships where we're really grappling with powerlessness, right? Yeah. Like truly we don't have control. You know, truly we don't have any impact on whether our partner is going to, you know, lose it. But we like to think that we do because it's really, really frightening to be totally powerless. It is. And so I think it's a way we protect ourselves, even though it can ultimately end up hurting us a bit because then we feel responsible for the abuse. But it's that, you know, that self-talk around like, oh, well, I'm just going to change this thing about me that he doesn't like. And then, you know, I'll be safer and then I can have some impact on this scary, you know, thing that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And it ends up being a life of walking on eggshells. Every every moment is like a calculated way of living where you have to look at the scenario. Well, I'm in this room and this person is pissed off right now and they're so angry and they're ready to rumble. Which direction do I step? Mm-hmm. What thing do I say? Do I keep my mouth shut? Do I walk over here? Do I go over to the counter and say, let me help you? You know, where are we in this? And in this moment, what is my calculated effort yeah. to keep the peace, to avoid the crazy backlash of whatever I might be saying or doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it becomes a life of walking on eggshells. And it's awful. What it does to your body, not just your mind, your physical body, the way your body goes into that constant state of fight or flight. And it wears you down. Yeah. It can make you really sick. Mm -hmm. And for years to come, if you don't get the help you need after you're out. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a lot with other guests about, you know, the nervous system. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the nervous system plays such a role in this story in so many ways, right? It His does. nervous system was primed yes. to be in the sympathetic fight or flight from his trauma experience. And then your nervous system was living in that situation every single day where things could become dangerous in a flash. In a flash, yep. Always on edge, always ready. And it carries on. It carries on, just like he he still carried that from his traumas. I still carry that from the traumas that I've been through. Mm -hmm. And that's, it really is something that you have to work on. Yeah, yeah. To overcome. So you two moved in together. Mm -hmm. You were pregnant. And this behavior was just really escalating. Yes. And then you know, where did it go from there? It was basically a matter of keeping the peace. And we got through we got through the birth of our daughter, which was a violent twenty-four hours in itself, which is awful to think about. Um, but we had he had this 
we had this argument and he was gone for like 24 hours before she was born. Mm. I actually had to track him down to be like, I'm in labor and this child is going to be born shortly. Yeah, it was not not my favorite birth experience yeah. of my children. Were you home or in the hospital? I was home. I birthed all three that I that are mine biologically at home and I was home. We had this argument. He started to get violent. My friend was there and she said you need to leave. And he did. He left. He went to the bar. He stayed at the bar until it closed. He went home with some buddies. Stayed with some buddies. And I didn't hear from him until I had to reach out to him to be like, I'm having this baby. And he showed up and I was like, I am not happy right now. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a rough one. Yeah. That was a rough one. That's really vulnerable. It is. Um, so Raven was born and the new bliss of this baby was, it really brought us together for a little while. There was a lot of peace. He was just so enamored with, with the baby and holding her and walking around with her was like his focus went from being on me to being on this baby and the love for this baby. And that was a beautiful thing. Um, I did, however, fall and break my leg 10 days after she was born. Oh, my. And it started another real spiral for, I would say, like the rest of our relationship where I was bedridden. I had a rod put in my leg and I was bedridden, couldn't walk for about two months. And then I started walking again ever so slightly using a walker and then a cane. And there was um, there was an incident in, so that was, I broke my leg in, Ju- in June of 2018. And then in n- the middle of November, he says, I'm going to go get stuff from the grocery store for Thanksgiving dinner. And he goes to the grocery store at like 9 a.m., Great time to go to the grocery store. Nobody's there. He goes to the grocery store, and I don't hear from him, and he is gone all day long. And it is about 9 p.m., and I'm like, where where the hell is he? What is, what is, what's going on? And I can see there's like bar charges on our car, so on our card, bank card. So he's been at the bar. I know this. He's Mm. been at the bar for a while. And he shows up absolutely shit-faced drunk, blacked out drunk, but I don't realize that he's blacked out. And I was like, where, where the hell have you been all day long? Right. And yeah, this is Thanksgiving like, day. Thanksgiving. So we he have was... four children. I'm at home. I'm at home. Like, I'm on my feet, but not super on my feet yet. And it is like the week before Thanksgiving. He's gone out to get groceries. He's been gone all day. He comes home absolutely wasted, blackout drunk, comes through the door. He's like laughing at me 
because I'm asking him where he's been. And he's like, you'll never fucking know where I went. You will never know where I've been all day. I could have been doing whatever the hell I want, just screaming. And I, that in that moment, that was the one moment I lost it. Mm-hmm. I lost it. You get pushed to the point where you lose it. Yeah. Gaslighting extremes. Um, and so I lost it. I was so pissed off. I was like, fuck you and the horse you rode in on. It started a major brawl. And I got thrown to the ground. And it snapped the top of my tibia off. Oh, Emily. So then I was, yes. Oh, Emily, it was awful. It was really awful. Right. Um, but then I was unable to been, walk for another six months. Yeah, you'd just been yep. healing. Oh, my goodness. Yep. And that's, I mean, I, I, was, I was stuck. There was no getting out then for that time until I could walk again. How would I be able to manage four children and myself? I don't even, I can't even walk. And I didn't know if I would be able to walk again. Yes, the doctor is telling me, you will be able to walk again. But you're not allowed to walk yet. You're not allowed to walk yet. All the time, my muscles are atrophying. And I, I'm losing my muscle mass. I'm gaining weight. I went into a dark place in yeah. life where I was just, I was stuck. There was no way to be like, I'm calling my mommy and saying, hey, get me out of here. I'm I'm bedridden. Come take care of me, right? Take mm -hmm. me and the kids in. There was none of that. I had to just wait it out until mm -hmm. I could walk again. Um, and it just kept getting worse. You know, here I was, a sitting duck. I was a, I was a, just a, <laughs> a huge weight of a punching bag. Mm. And not so much physically in in those days, but very much so emotionally, yes. mentally. And you were already struggling so hard. Already struggling. Yeah. So it just continued to get worse. There were some moments when I, I would have to go console the children because he's screaming and yelling and his own daughter, who was 12, 13 at the time, she would pull me into her room at night and she would be like, Mom, Mom, you got to save me. Like, why don't you just leave him? Just leave him already. Just leave him and take me with you. And I had to sit there and say, it doesn't work like that. Oh. I can't take you with me. I can't just say I'm leaving. There's no physical, there's no physical evidence to bring to a court to say, hey, I'm in this seriously abusive relationship. This man should have nothing to do with the children or myself. I can't take them nothing. Mm -hmm. I had to sit and wait for there to be physical evidence. Wow. And eventually there was. Yeah. Yeah, but gosh, just thinking about that whole period of time and how you weren't physically able to take care of your children and had to leave them totally dependent on this person who was so violent. Yes. Yeah, it was a dark time. Yeah. Yeah. 
we've survived. We are resilient, right? Yes. Human beings, we can, we can achieve great things and pull ourselves out of the darkness. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm glad that we're acknowledging how dark it can be sometimes, you know, because I think, you know, I, I love, I love focusing on, you know, the victories. Yes. Um, The victories are fun, but there's a, there's a very big darkness. Yeah. That you have to come out of that darkness to become a victor. Yeah. There, that it comes from a darkness. If yeah. there is no darkness, there's no victory. Right, right. And I think it's sometimes hard for people to understand the totality of that dark place when you're in a domestic violence situation because it's like not only are you living without a sense of safety in a sense that anything could happen at any moment, but also your sense of who you are as a person is just being ground down. And I, you know, I've heard you say several times, you know, you know, well, it wasn't always physical, right? But, you know, really, like the impact of what is not physical. It does go physical. I mean, it is, it is the body keeps score. Yeah. Right. It becomes a physical, a physical thing to bear that weight, that darkness. There were moments of being bedridden when I would think, is this my life? Like, is this really my life? Mm -hmm. Here I am almost 40 years old and I am bedridden. I don't know if I'll be able to walk. I'm the only person in this house making money, yet I'm still bedridden. And I, like, I I don't know if I want to do this. This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I heard about life being this dark place. Mm -hmm. I don't want, I couldn't think in those moments that there was anything good. Yeah. Yes, my children exist that they'll be happy with their grandparents. Like those moments happen Yeah. where I thought maybe I'm just done. Maybe I'm just done Mm -hmm. with this life. Yeah. Yeah, looking for any escape possible. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, you continued to wake up every day. Every day. Yeah. And then finally, you began to be able to walk again. I did, yes. And it took a lot of months to really get back up on my feet. I still walk with a limp. <laughs> so it's been a slow process to get back all that I lost physically from being bedridden for so long. I mean, in total, it was nearly a year. So that was a lot for my body to carry and is now a lot for my body to heal from. Mm-hmm. And there was actually a point further down the road it was nearing the end of our relationship before he was arrested when I realized I am weak because he has kept me weak yeah I have not been able to do anything because he has not allowed me to do anything Mm -hmm. I have not been allowed to walk to the kitchen to get myself something to drink or to make my own food or to make dinner for the family. I have not been allowed to go to the grocery store. I have not been allowed to go out and work in the yard. And my home, like my my gardening, my, my gardening, my homesteading, the ducks, 
a little duck farm. That's like my life and the things I want to do and I love to do. And I was not allowed to do those things. Mm. It was divvied up among the children or himself. And I was just stuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just losing all, all autonomy. Yep. Everything. You weren't allowed to make any choices for yourself. Nope. My friends all sucked. I wasn't allowed to see them. I wasn't allowed to talk to my family. Don't go hang out with your family. You can't do any of this stuff. And this is, you know, it was, there were good moments during, we went into the pandemic era, right? Where we're quarantined at home and we're not doing anything and we're not going anywhere. And that was actually a better time for us mm-hmm. part of the pandemic was a better time for us and then it's like you know you have cycles of your, your highs and lows and i looking back on a lot of the journal entries that i had and the things that were written in my protective order there was definitely a cycle yeah. where he would be okay and fine for a couple of months and then we'd have like three months of violence Mm-hmm. And then it would go back to being okay for two months. And then violence for three months. Yeah. And there was definitely a cycle. And I think when the pandemic hit, we were in the good, you know, the good space there with the with the positive on the upswing cycle. And it was, I'm glad that we were, he was in that particular phase of the cycle during and- the beginning of the pandemic. I'm curious about what he was like when he was in the good phase of the cycle. Um, he was very loving and affectionate and always said, even in the even in the bad times, always said like he loved me so much. And I do think that for him, what he was able to to do with love that was the most he could give but he didn't know how to love Mm -hmm. in an appropriate manner like openly and warmly comforting you know speaking openly like this was not it just wasn't he didn't understand that he had watched his parents fight like cats and dogs they abused each other they were awful to each other they were awful to him like what he has learned about love and what love is is not what love should be yeah so that was he did the best he could i think um in those good times where he could be fun and hang out with the kids and not be in complete asshole to them and not sit there and pick apart every single thing that they're doing and tell them that they're doing everything wrong he could go through the house without swatting somebody on the head or whatever you know thunking them on the top of the head he would make dinner and enjoy cooking and listening to music and would be up for adventurous times with like, hey, let's go to the lake. Let's throw all the kids in the truck and head to the beach. Let's go camping. Those were the good times, the good, the the positive phase of the cycle. Yeah. And I asked that question because I think it is so important for anyone who hasn't experienced domestic violence to know that it is not like day in and day out 
terrible, it's not, right? It's like, not day in and day out terrible. And there are these shining moments where you get this glimpse of who this person could truly be if they just took the time to heal themselves. Yes. Or recognize that, like, the abusive parts are wrong yeah, and they shouldn't happen or that they are even abusive because in so many cases, 99.9% of cases, I'm sure the abuser cannot recognize that they are abusive. Yes. It's not, they don't have that ability to reflect onto themselves and understand that their behavior is not, I can't even say normal because what is normal really? Yeah. But it's not acceptable behavior. This is not how you treat people and they can't see that. Yeah. And but I do think those um, you know, in the the DV world they call it the honeymoon phase, right? The honeymoon phase. <laughs> but I do think that those phases in the cycle of the relationship, I I I really think that is a huge part of why it becomes so hard to leave. It is. Um, because you think that you might finally be, you know, figuring it out. Like you might finally be, yeah, you know. Yeah, we're in this good spot. Like maybe things are going to work. Maybe they're going to be okay. Maybe maybe this is the happiness. Yeah. And then it's abruptly ended at some point in time. And that's really hard to, it's really hard when you're in those moments, when you're in those relationships to look at it from uh wider viewpoint Mm -hmm. of of looking inward onto the relationship and saying, hey, but this keeps repeating, but this is only a cycle. You don't want to see that. Right. You know, a lot of it is is just, uh, we can very easily get into relationships that are violent and abusive without knowing it, without even knowing that they really exist and what they look like in reality we do there's that lifetime movie image in our heads this is what we've seen right we've seen these movies these lifetime movies where it's just this violent all the time crazy stuff and that's not what it is no it's not what it is you get sucked into it you get sucked into the happy times the good times the positive times the hopes the dreams i think at the end of the day for me when it was all said and done and he was gone, I was brokenhearted to an extreme. I cried for months. Mm-hmm. And you would think like, I'm crying because he's such an asshole and I you know, can't believe I've been through this. No. No. You cry over the loss of a relationship yeah. and the love that you thought existed. The love that you were told existed, the love that maybe you put into it and felt, that is still a huge, huge heartbreak. Yeah. That is that is a grief. You go through the stages of grief. I went through and am still kind of surfing my way through day-to-day emotions. Yeah. And they're not necessarily linked to him specifically or that relationship, but just the baggage of what remains. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I really resonate with that. And I think that's another important, you know, piece for people to understand is that, you know, it's from the outside looking in, it might be hard to understand how somebody can be so emotionally invested in a relationship that's so unhealthy. 
But you are. I mean, you, you are. did fall in love with this person. And yes. there have been all these good periods of time, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, just the good things. And even having the thoughts of having a family together that your family will be together and you'll raise them, the children together, and you'll have all of these things that you dreamed of doing that you originally talked about doing. And you still sometimes talk about doing those things. Yeah. And it's really hard to let that go. Yeah. And it is a grief process when you do. Yeah. Because there I was with four children on my own, with a homestead to take care of, and no one. Yeah. No one as far as a partner goes. Yeah. But I think that, um, you know, there were, um, I had an entire freaking golden community behind me when all of this went down and they have and still do carry me to this day to make sure that I've got everything I need for all the kids, you know? Yeah. And that's really been interesting to me doing this podcast and these interviews is that every single interview, somebody at some point says, but I had this community. Yes. It's the community is so important. It is so important. And that's something that, when you are in a domestic violence scenario, a lot of times you are isolated. Mm-hmm. It's just like I was told, I'm not allowed to talk to friends and that person can't come over or whatever. Or I don't like that person, whatever it was. You become isolated and you lose touch with people. And I think it is important for people to remember that although you have lost touch in some ways, your people are still there for you. Mm-hmm. They are still behind you. And when you do tell them what's going on, they're going to be like, all right, I got you. Yeah. And they're going to come out of the woodwork. Yeah. And that's something that that really, really, really needs to be impressed upon, like, the masses. If you are in a domestic violence situation, keep keep contact with the people. Don't hesitate to reach out to your people. And your people have people. Mm-hmm. And there is a this golden thread that holds us all together. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like the catalyst for your relationship ending was when he was violent in a way where you could get the evidence against him. Yes. And I would also imagine that that was also something you could share with your community. Yes. Yeah. And what yes. what was that incident like, if you don't mind Ooh. talking about it? So um, it was actually, we have this thing. We have the theme with Thanksgiving here. Um, So it was a Thanksgiving evening. And one of the kids asked my son, who was nine at the time, just turned 10. Yeah, just turned 10. He loves pumpkin pie. And he was like, Papa, Papa, can we have pumpkin pie for breakfast tomorrow? And he was in a shit mood and he says, No, you can't have. And she just starts screaming at him, You can't have pumpkin pie. You don't eat pumpkin pie for breakfast. So we go to bed and I was like, Damn it. Like, why does he have to? It was a beautiful Thanksgiving day for our family. And it was just ruined in that moment. And so we go to bed and the next morning he gets up and like spitefully almost serves the kids pumpkin pie. Mm. 
for mm. breakfast. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like dealing with his own guilt, but at the same time, it was not without a consequence, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm serving them this pie, but there will be consequences. And he was just on edge already mm-hmm. for the day. It was 9 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. We're serving kids pie. Sounds great, right? And Phoenix comes into the bedroom and he's kind of got a giggle on his face. And I said, what are you doing, buddy? And he said, I was eating Tesla's pie. And I was like, oh, you know, chuckling because she never eats anything. Like she'll eat two bites and then she's done and she's off and he loves pumpkin pie. So I thought it was hilarious. He went through and scavenged her pumpkin pie and my husband flipped out Mm. and he stood up and he started raging. You don't fucking eat other people's food. You don't fucking eat other people's food. And he takes his hat off of his head and he hits Phoenix mm. in the face with it. Oh. And in that moment, I was like, this is it. This is it. This is it. Because I'm not going to sit here and allow anyone to hit my children. Yeah. So Phoenix falls into my arms. He's sobbing. My husband goes to the bathroom and I was like, dude, you got to go. Like, you've got to go upstairs. You got to get away. And he comes out of the bathroom and he's like, get the fuck upstairs. No kids downstairs. You're not allowed to be downstairs. And Phoenix just runs. He comes around the, my husband comes around the side of the bed. He had been playing video games. Comes around the side of the bed. He's across the bed from me. And I said, you know, I I really don't think that you um, intended to hit him as hard as you did, but you really freaked him out. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, that was too much. That was not okay. And I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> and he stood up and he started punching the bed and screaming at me about how I'm too soft on the kids. I'll fucking hit who I want to fucking hit. I'll hit you if I need to hit you. If you need to be taught a lesson, I'll teach you one. And I was like, "We, this is not okay. We're not doing this. And he ran outside to smoke, screaming everything at me. He ran outside to smoke and I was just kind of like pacing the bedroom like, oh my God. Oh my God, this is, this is going down. And he got back into the bedroom and he starts yelling at me, what a piece of shit mother I am. And uh, he's like, I didn't fucking hit him that hard. I didn't fucking hit him that hard. And he takes his hat off of his head and he starts hitting me. Mm. And he hits me in the face once. And I was like, you just fucking hit me. You just fucking hit me. I cannot believe you just hit me. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I'll hit you again. And he took his hat and he hit me again. But this time he put his knuckles through my mouth. Mm. And I was like, I'm done. Yeah. I called 911 and that was it. Yeah. I was shaking. He knew what was going on. I was like, finally, this moment has come. He hit me. He put a knuckle through my face. I am done. I am out. Mm -hmm. And 
the sheriffs came. They locked him up, took, locked him up through with a key that day. Didn't even ask questions. There was no nothing. He had hit a child. Mm-hmm. The child said, he hit me. And that was it. They, they hauled him off before I even spoke to anyone. Mm-hmm. And the craziest thing, I was so shaken up. I went back inside after all, all of, they took my statement. We did the affidavit thing. They re- took recordings and pictures and all this stuff. And when they finally left, I was, it was a huge relief for me. It was a scary moment for me to think, like, I'm on my own before kids, right? Like, here we are. Mm-hmm. And I walked in the house, and the kids were elated. They were so happy. They were jumping for joy. They were like, it's mama day. We're having a mama party. He's finally gone. Every single last one of them was so happy. Wow. He was gone. Wow. And they threw me a party. <sighs> And that was that. I, the, <laughs> the real fight began for the kids. Mm-hmm. For me to keep the kids. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, that was a, that was a, the mama party. I'll never forget it. <sighs> they were so happy. What That's when you know you did something right, right? Yeah. <laughs> when the kids are jumping for joy. Yeah. It, yeah. It really, like, and I've got tears right now. Um, it hit home. What a huge impact our relationship and he had had on them. Yeah. And what a negative space it had been. Yeah. That for him to be gone, they were happy. Yeah. It makes it so much easier to give up on that dream of family yeah. when you re- recognize, yeah. you know. And then I was like, all right, we're where we need to be. We're going to, I'm going to save the kids. We're going to make this, we're, we're going to make this a thing. It'll be me and four kids and we got this. And it was like, I became, I really became mama bear fighter. It was an uphill battle for six months to gain guardianship over the eldest, um, to make sure that all of the kids were safe protective orders, no contact orders through the state, um, adjusting those to kind of play around with whether or not he could have a positive relationship with the youngest mm-hmm. because he still had a chance mm-hmm. with her. And if that, if, if, if he could be a decent person in her life, me aside, I don't matter, right? If he's a good person for her in her life, she can grow up with a father who loves her and she has a positive relationship with him. Maybe he could be the fun dad once or twice a week. Hey, great, fantastic. But that was, those dreams were short-lived. Mm-hmm. And I haven't even heard from him for eight, ten months, eight months, something like that. Yeah. And he's been in and out of jail. Yeah, so it was a good fight. Um, it was worth it to keep the keep the kids safe. Um, it was a mountain. I was up for the legal guardianship. I was up against my eldest's father, mother, and grandparents. Wow. So it was me versus four parties. And 
I ended up gaining legal guardianship, which to me in the moment was like, phew, you know, I finally got it done. And looking back on it and seeing like all of the names involved in this whole huge case Mm -hmm. and what we went through and what I had to go through. And I was like, I'm not the natural parent of this child. I am scrutinized from every fucking angle possible. Mm-hmm. you know, where do I work? How much money do I make? What's my house like? Is there adequate space? Is there this? Is there that? Is there this? Is there that? Like all of these things. And none of the others had to go through that. Mm. They were asked questions, but because they were the natural biologic relatives of this child, it wasn't really questioned. Right. And so, you know, looking back on that, fight was I climbed a mountain mm-hmm. and I won <laughs> you did that's the, that's the victor aspect of my whole story is yeah. is being able to keep the kids together keep them safe and I fought for that yeah you really are a badass thank you <laughs> so are you oh thank you <laughs> yeah yeah that is a lot it is yeah, and I imagine that your mind and body are still healing. They are indeed. Things do get better. I think one of the biggest things is the financial aspect of it, you know. There's a lot that you have to overcome financially in order to remove yourself from a domestic violence situation. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the biggest things that holds people back. Yes. Where even if you are physically stuck somewhere and you feel physically stuck, the financial aspect of it is is far larger, yeah. more cumbersome to think, I have to have the money to survive. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, people who are victims... They aren't allowed to work or don't have a financial backing mm-hmm. of any sort, any kind of savings. Mm-hmm. Because in so, so many cases, it can even be like a financial form of abuse where you are just kept under wraps. You're not allowed to have money. Here, I'll dole out your money for you, mm-hmm. right? The financial aspect of everything in getting out of a domestic violence situation that that is huge yeah that is huge and it's always a struggle and rebuilding takes a lot time effort money i'm so exhausted it's exhausting yeah but i'm happy yes happy and healing and even recognizing being able to recognize the things that are wounds right when we are we have our trauma that we carry with us and we can sit there and go through it and go through it and grow through it, trying to work it all out, figure it all out. There's still going to be residual effects Mm -hmm. of the trauma. Mm -hmm. And so working daily to look at my patterns of speech and the words I choose or the moments that 
are triggering? What is it in that moment? Being able to surf through my brain on a daily basis to say, why, why do I feel so agitated right now? Why do I feel like grumbly on the inside? I know this is some sort of like I have encountered something today that has kind of set me off mm-hmm. where this trauma is surfacing. Yeah. And that's a da- that's a daily struggle. Yeah. That's a daily struggle where we, we have to find that that peace and that zen and how are we going to repair these wounds and they're always going to be there mm-hmm. we gotta filter through every day to maintain that inner peace yeah calm calm that nervous system down yeah. get it to that peaceful state where it's not always fight or flight yeah yeah. And it sounds like you're really developing a good relationship with your body again and that you're really listening. I am. I am. And I'm grateful to myself for doing that work t- to be able to do so. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. It really is. And I think that's a a really huge loss that we experience in those years that we're in those relationships is we have to get so disconnected from our bodies just to deal with it. Survival mode, you disconnect. Yeah. yeah. So it's such a blessing to get to be back in your body. It is. It is. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying dealing with the the trauma, you know, within my body and, and recognizing it and feeling like I'm actually working on myself. Yeah. I'm doing this for me. I'm going to be a better person because I am working on my trauma. Well, that's... Yeah. A huge deal. Yep. You're healing. Yes. Yeah. Oh, Emily, it was so good to have this conversation with you today. Indeed. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to get the stories out. It really is. It really is. You know, and, and I hope that, you know, other women who might be in this situation or who have left a situation like this feel really seen and feel connected Um, because it happens for a lot of us. Yes. Yes, it does. And I hope so too. And I hope that people know there are resources out there and a community behind them, even if they feel there might not be. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Mirabai. It's been a pleasure. Yes. And you truly are a badass. Thank you. Likewise. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another Fireside Chat with Mirabai. Today, I want to talk about the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. July 10th, 2022. On June 24th, 2022, 16 days ago, the Supreme Court robbed me and all women of bodily autonomy. As I have been trying to make sense of the news that I have lost the right to determine what happens to my body, my mind has flashed back to 1992, 
when as a 15-year-old I knew I needed to put my body in the fight for abortion rights and went to Washington, D.C. to stand with hundreds of thousands of women to demand that we retain our right to our bodies. I came to the fight because I had begun to read accounts of what it was like for women before Roe. I read about back-alley abortions that led to infections and ultimately took the lives of women. Women who were living a life. Women who had personalities and families and dreams for themselves. I read about how women who became pregnant from rape had to carry those babies to term. Nine months of prolonged powerlessness, their bodies forever altered. I read about women who died due to pregnancy complications because the life of their fetus was prioritized over their own. I never, ever wanted to live in that reality. It also became clear to me that it wasn't about morality. It was about control. When I was 16, I volunteered as an escort at Planned Parenthood, and an anti-choice protester from Washington, Indiana, began to hit on me. He looked like he was probably around 50. It became clear that what he was there for wasn't to uphold his deeply felt values. It was to have as much control over the bodies of women as he could. He thought he had a right to my body at 16. Recently, I was processing this impending disaster, the one that's unfolded already, with a client of mine. She was sharing with me that her sexual abuse occurred at age 11. That during the time she was repeatedly being raped by a family member, she began her period. She didn't even know enough about her own body to realize that she might get pregnant from the violation that she was enduring. But now, as an adult woman, she does. That realization brought her to her knees, thinking about how traumatized she already was and is still, and then imagining her 11-year-old body being forced to carry a pregnancy. I cried later, thinking about that session. It makes me want to cry now. It's not just about babies. It's about women and girls. The first time I really acknowledged that my marriage had veered into something that was breaking me inside, I was pregnant. I was pregnant with my daughter. There were some protective instincts inside of me that told me to get out. When my ex-husband's rages began to feel as if they might go to new and scary places, I knew that I should leave. I was working at a job that did not have paid maternity leave. I had nothing in savings, and I had another child to support. I could not figure out how I could leave and still give birth, recover, and feed my children. So I stayed. Eventually, I did find myself knocked to the ground, pinned, literally and figuratively. I'm not saying I wish I had aborted my daughter. That was a choice I would not have made because I did want to be her mom. What I am saying is I understand how not having control over whether or not you have a child can trap you. 
how it is fundamental to our ability to make the best and healthiest choices for ourselves and our born children to have a say in whether or not we carry a pregnancy. When I first saw The Handmaid's Tale, it was frightening to see the roadmap for the grotesque oppression of women, how easily it could happen, and yet Gilead still seems so far off to me. It is way too close today. I am scared for my 12-year-old daughter, who identifies as a member of the LGBTQ community and who has a uterus and a 25% chance of being raped. I am scared for poor women who will have to make impossible choices when they become pregnant, knowing they don't have the resources to care for another child. I am scared for the women who wanted to get pregnant and then had tragedy strike and will have to carry dead babies to term or lose their own lives to protect the life of an infant who is going to die upon delivery. This is wrong. I don't know what to do about it at this point except to share the stories of women so that you, the listener, may understand all that we still face all the ways in which we are battling against the precariousness of being female and yet still finding the strength to go on. We are badasses, especially the women of color out there living in a world that tries so hard to devalue you. I see you. I see all of you. We are in this together. Badass would not be possible without the support of several people who have donated their skills to the show. First of all, Kevin Evans, who has volunteered his time recording and editing the show. Thank you, Kevin. Another big thanks to Austin Lucas and his record label Last Chance Records for allowing us the use of his original music. In addition, we would like to thank Kate Long and her band Rodeola for the use of their original music. Finally, a big thanks to the Badass Team's life partners, Alex and Amy, who have made do without us on weekends and evenings as we have been holed up working on the show. 